You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Welcome to Red Tree, or as we affectionately call it, the refrigerator. How did this happen? How did this happen? It's, it's normally like 100 degrees in here. Temperature set to the same thing. We come in this morning and it's like, hey, the theater realized it was fall or something. I don't know. Glad you guys are here. Glad you could join us today. If you are visiting today, thank you for worshiping us here at Red Tree. We know that you could be doing a lot of things with your Sunday morning, but you're here. And it's, it's a privilege and an honor to have you with us. We're going to be back in the Gospel of Mark today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 10. Uh, We've been going through uh, Mark for a long time now. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have house Bibles spread out at the end of each row. We we just really think having access to a physical copy of the Word of God is is just really important. We want to make sure you all have that. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, give an awkward look to someone at the end of the row. They will pass you one. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to just take that home. Or better yet, talk to one of our pastors. We'll give you one with less coffee stains on it. Um, I say that every week. It's such a dumb joke. <laughs> so we're back in Mark. And I was thinking as I was preparing this week, um, first I was thinking how great a job Dan did, right? Can you guys give him a high five or a thank you? That was... So good. First, first go around. Elder candidate Dan blew it out of the water. Now I got to follow it up. Um, but I don't know about you guys. As I, as I was thinking about being back in the Gospel of Mark, we've spent more than a year in this book, and then we were off for a month. There was something about stepping back into Mark that was kind of refreshing, right? I had a church history professor who used to say, when you study the accounts of the New Testament and when you study church history, it's like stepping into a Bible study with a trusted mentor. That you're, you're hearing these perspectives on who God is from people who, who loved him passionately who came before you. And there's been something about being in Mark and seeing this unique expression of who Jesus is that has been so refreshing for my soul that coming back to Mark was kind of just like coming back and hanging out with an old friend. And so I don't, I don't know if you feel that way, uh, but man, I do. So we're, we're jumping into Mark 10 today and, and we thought, you know, we just have a nice, a nice lighthearted weekend where we talk about Jesus' thoughts on divorce. So... There you go. It's one of the problems with going verse by verse through the book of the Bible. You can't, you've got to hit them all. So we're in chapter 10, starting in the, the first verse of the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, we hear this. And he left there and went to the re- region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. 
And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And this is the word of the Lord. So that's a nice, nice heavy text to start, start our day off with. That's, that's pretty intense, right? Um, and, and I'll be honest, when I first started prepping for this, I thought, huh, okay. Okay, this is going to be that kind of week. And yet the more time I spent in this and the more I reflected on the heart of our sweet Jesus and saw the, the, the deeper truth of the gospel that he was presenting to his followers and to, to the people surrounding him that day, the more, the more it just brought me to this place of joy and worship. And, and I genuinely believe God has that for us today. And I start out that way because I know as soon as we start, the fact that we're talking about this makes a lot of people in the room uncomfortable. Because the reality is, a huge amount of us have been affected by divorce. Statistics tell us that half of marriages end in divorce. And if you look within evangelical Christianity, that number actually goes up above the national average slightly. And so I know, I know that that a lot of us have either been divorced or been affected by divorce. And so to come in here hot and heavy with Jesus' command and thoughts on it is, is weighty. And I know that, that stings for some of us to sit in this room and know that's what we're going to talk about. And so I want, I want to start by saying, listen, listen, your Jesus loves you. And he has nothing in his word but life for you. And I want you to hear that. I want you to start from that perspective. Christ has life for you this morning. And so even though your story and your history may give you some pain regarding what we're talking about right now, I want to encourage you to experience that and be present and hear what Jesus has for you this morning because I promise you what he has for you is life. Sound like a plan? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through some historical and contextual issues that make sense of this passage. And there's a bunch of them. And so I don't, I I want to make sure we get right to that because there's a lot going on here contextually that we can really easily miss. And so once we kind of have our heads wrapped around what's actually going on here, we're, we're going to bring it to this larger idea. Jesus is teaching here a really plain and blunt teaching, but there's also a significantly larger and more important gospel issue that Jesus is pointing out here. And so we're going to start by seeking to understand the passage. Then we're going to take a step back to see this larger picture that he's talking about. And that's going to bring us around to the prophet Hosea and to the apostle Paul. And I think, I think we're going to end out in a really worshipful and excited place this morning. So the first thing we need to know is remember where we are in Mark. This is the latter half of Jesus's ministry. He has concluded his ministry in Galilee, that is the northern part of Palestine. Almost all of Jesus's ministry in Mark's telling of the gospel takes place in and around Galilee. And now he's making this final journey to Jerusalem. He's He's going to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested and be crucified and killed. And he knows that is coming. He is tying up all the loose ends of his ministry as he makes 
his way toward Jerusalem for what he knows to be the final time. And so as he travels south out of Galilee and into Judea, it tells us that he crosses over the Jordan, which if you look at a map of Palestine, and some of you have those in the back of your Bible, if you look at a map of this area, this is actually out of the way for Jesus. He's traveling out of the straight line from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's crossing over the river into an area called Perea. And so that's where our story takes place today, as he enters into Perea, huge crowds gather around him, he teaches them, and the Pharisees try and set Jesus up with a trap. They come with questions to try and lock him in, to try and show him to be a hypocrite, or get him in trouble, or whatever it is, and we see Jesus' response to it. But it's important to note that Jesus has gone off the straight path from Galilee to Jerusalem to head into Perea because he knows this is his last time preaching to these people who he's preached to before. He's come to this region multiple times. We've seen even in Mark's telling of the gospel. And so he comes here last time and he preaches. It says, as was his custom, the people gather around him and he teaches them. And it's a conclusion of the teaching. I love, by the way, that Mark is telling the story of Jesus' life and he's like, and Jesus gave a great sermon right then. Anyway, right after. And you're kind of like, wait, what was it? And he's like, don't worry about it. Which is where Matthew comes in and he's like, I'll tell you in excruciating detail. Mark, sit over there. Let me tell you about this. But Mark skips right over it. He taught them. It was great. And afterwards, the Pharisees come up and they try and trap him. They ask him this question. Is it permittable for a man to divorce his wife? Is it okay? Is it cool to get divorced, Jesus? What do you think? This is a weird question. And we kind of have to start by asking ourselves, why did these guys think this would be a good question to trap Jesus? Because the reality is, in this day, in Jewish theology, in Jewish culture, this wasn't a question. Everyone knew and understood that divorce was permittable. The, the debate in Jewish theology in this day was, under what circumstances was divorce permittable? And so to ask Jesus a general, vague question like this, it seems silly, and it's actually led a lot of theologians to say, well... These guys know that Jesus is a rabbi, and so the ending of the question is simply implied. It's implied that when they say, is it permittable to get divorced, that what they're really saying is, is it permittable to get divorced for any reason you want to? Because that was essentially the debate of the day, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. And I don't know if that part's implied or not. I, I, I researched this a good bit. I, I even took it back the original language, and I, I tried to pick this apart, and I just don't know. I don't think there's a good enough reason one way or the other to say whether or not these, these Pharisees are, are having like an implied ending on the question or not. It can go either way. And the reason is this. They're asking Jesus this question in Perea, which if you recall, which there's no reason for you to, so don't feel bad if you don't, but if you recall, we've been in Perea before in the story of Mark, And the last time we were in Perea was when John the Baptist got beheaded in this region for questioning a divorce. And so it makes a ton of sense that the Pharisees in this area who hate Jesus, who Mark has already told us, are actively plotting to get him killed. We're like, hey, it worked last time we got a troublesome rabbi to question divorce. Let's get this guy to question it too. Maybe Herod will cut his head off. That would be awesome. Good for us. And so they ask him this loaded question. 
Is it permissible to get a divorce? Now, there is a reality here that they're stepping into by, by posing this question to Jesus, whether the ending is polite or not, they're, they're stepping into a recognized and existing debate amongst Jewish folk at this time. So at this time, there are essentially two major, there are more, but two major schools of biblical or Torah interpretation. You have the school of Hillel and the school of Shami. Shami, Shemi, Shemai, I can't say that one. But two different schools, and they essentially fall down this line, theologically conservative and theologically liberal and progressive. You have Shami, Shemai, who is much more conservative. In general, his interpretations of Torah were slow, thoughtful, conservative, looking back to the old ways as much as possible. And Hillel is much more progressive, going, how can we contextualize these texts to today and to our cultural existence today? It's, you know, it's almost like there's parallels to that in our culture, but I can't quite name them, so I'll just let you guys think about that. But socially progressive theologians and socially conservative theologians, and they, they pretty much go back and forth in debate. And by the way, this is not something that's super comfortable for us evangelicals to talk about, but Jesus did not shy away from these debates. He spoke into the existing theological debates of his day often. And what's really interesting and probably really uncomfortable for a lot of us, is that most of the time, Jesus' interpretations of Torah fall much more in line with the theologically liberal and progressive Hillel than they do with the theologically conservative guy. Pretty intense to think about, but Jesus in his day, his interpretations, and, and, and Jesus came up with his own interpretations. When you write the Bible, you get to do that. But, but he came up with his own teachings, but often his teachings were way more in line with the existing thoughts and discussions in Hillel's school than they were in, in Shemai's. And so the, the thing going on here that we need to know, the, the dividing line here, comes back to this passage in Deuteronomy. You can, you can look it up. It's, oh, I have it here. It's Deuteronomy what is it? 24. The beginning of Deuteronomy 24. Moses talks about divorce. And hey, I'll, I'll just read this first section to you. When a man takes his wife and marries her, and then if, he finds no fa- if she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house, and it, it goes on. But the phrase here that they would lock onto is, find some indecency. So really quick, ladies in the room, I'm sorry, the Jewish folk had like halfway no-fault divorce. Halfway. A dude was given freedom to divorce his wife for a multitude of reasons. You wives, you didn't get the same freedom. Sorry. That's how it worked out. But this phrase, find some indecency, the, the rabbis debated what this actually meant. And so the conservative school said, well, obviously this is just referring to adultery. It's referring to some sort of sexual immorality performed by the wife, and that gives space for divorce. And the progressive liberal theologian, Salel, said, no, 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 anything can be indecent. It's just if it, if it tweaks you wrong that day. And so they went so far as to say, man, if your wife burns your food too often, that's incredibly indecent. Get her out of there. If you meet another woman who's just more beautiful and your wife just seems ugly to you, I mean, ugliness is certainly indecent, so there you go. Which, you know, dang, that's cold. But anyway, that's, that's kind of the debate that was going back and forth. And so when they, when they bring this up, 
Is it permittable to divorce? Jesus does this just masterful theological work where he shuts these guys down. First, he says, well, what did Moses command you? Give me your scriptural proof. Because here's the thing. When they ask this question, they're trying to get Jesus to take a stance. Because they know, they know that in general, Jesus is pretty progressive. And he speaks teachings that empower the people. And so they know, well, if he goes with Hillel here, he'll be empowering his audience, but he'll be ostracizing himself from John the Baptist, who criticized Herod's divorce. But if he goes with Shamwow, (laughs) if he goes with him, he'll be connecting himself to John the Baptist's ministry, but he'll be isolating himself from the majority of his followers This is a good trap. It's a good trap. They feel like they got him. So Jesus, rather than speaking into it, he goes, well, what does the scripture say? To which they bring him immediately back to the verse in controversy. Hey, Moses said we could do it. That's that's the whole deal. And they're trying to set him up to give us an answer. Pick a side, Jesus. And Jesus, rather than engaging in interpretation of this phrase, which was the debate of the day, takes it back behind Moses. He says, listen, you're missing the whole point of Moses. Moses gave that law because you guys are hard-hearted and stiff-necked and sinful. And he was trying to put some order on your chaos. But that's not the way God designed it. And Jesus takes it back to Genesis 2, in God's original creation, in God's original design. And you can look up that passage and, and read it if you'd like. It's, it's really powerful. I'll, I'll give it to you just really quick. This is Genesis 2, 22-25. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called a woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So Jesus takes it back to the design and says, listen, you're, you're, if you're debating this nuance of Moses, you don't even understand Moses. He spoke that to mitigate your sin, to, to put structure over your chaos. That's not the way God designed it. God's original design was unity, relationship, connection, intimacy, and commitment. That's what God designed for you. And so what's interesting here is Jesus ends up essentially affirming the conservative point of view. You shouldn't get divorced. But by doing so, he does so in a way that that not only takes a controversial theological position, but challenges the entire construct of the rabbinic system. They're, They're trying to draw him into this debate over Moses, and Jesus just says, you don't even understand Moses. Moses was there because you guys were so sinful. That's not God's design or desire for you. Dang! He drops this bomb. 
Where he just goes, that's not, you're missing the point. If you're, if you're stuck debating over what is and isn't permissible under the law, the law is just set as corrals around sin. That's not what God even wants for you. God's design for you is life, freedom, intimacy, relationship. The law is just curse management. So Jesus not only triggers their little trap, he jumps on it up and down and goes, no, 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 no. You're not going to draw me into some stupid debate about divorce. Let's talk about whether or not the law is valid. (laughs) Dang! Not that the law is invalid. Jesus isn't saying that. He's, He's pointing to this larger purpose that God is doing. Remember, the whole theme of Mark, Jesus' message in Mark, is the kingdom of God is near. God is doing something new. And you can be a part of it. These rabbis are trying to draw Jesus into something old. A debate over a law. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. God's kingdom is doing something new. Something new. And you guys are missing the point. Man, I, I, I love this. I love this about our Jesus. That, that he takes this, this essentially petty argument, which I mean, has like some import, but he, he takes it and he points it back to the actual thing of importance, which is God and his design for his creation and his relationship with them. And so I want to I point out two quick things here. The, the first thing is this. Jesus is making a really plain commandment concerning divorce here. And I, I, I believe firmly that there are some of us in the room this morning who just need to hear Jesus' plain words. Where he says, marriage is worth it and you should fight for it. Don't walk away for a dumb reason. Some of us need to hear that. Where Jesus is, is saying very plainly, this is not what God wants for you. God's design is not to see these things, to see marriages destroyed. That he, that he wants you to fight for them. Some of us need to hear that. But I also, as, as I say that, I want you to hear this as well. Now we live in a cursed and broken world. And people are affected by the curse. And we all make sinful decisions. And we all make destructive decisions. And for some reason in our theological camp, we've taken divorce and put it on this pedestal as though it's some greater sin than others. As though if you've been engaged and if you've been affected by divorce, that you have to live the rest of your life in the church with like a red D tattooed on your forehead or something. And that is not the case. It is not the case. That's not what Jesus has for you. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus said, there is no sin or blasphemy for which you won't be forgiven. There's nothing the curse can do to you or your heart that makes you untouchable or unlovable to Jesus. Some of us in this room have been shamed and guilted by this passage. We've had these words thrown at you as a weapon. And I want you to hear today, these are not a weapon against you. They are a weapon for you. Your Jesus loves you. 
And it does not matter. It does not matter. Beloved, hear this. It does not matter what brokenness your sin and your decisions and other people's sin and other people's decisions has brought upon you. Your life is never beyond the reach and redemption of our sweet Jesus. It isn't. So, I don't want you, I don't want anyone in this room to walk out this morning going, well, my marriage failed, or my marriage is failing, therefore Jesus hates me. It could not be further from the truth. Jesus is saying a a very blunt and clear teaching here. That God's desire is for marriage to be sacred and protected and fought for and preserved. Because it's important. And we're going to talk about why it's important. But that never means, that never means that your weakness or things done to you disconnects you from Jesus. Beloved, Jesus came to this earth to make a way for people affected and broken by the curse to be connected to God. We are not so arrogant to think that a failed marriage is stronger than Jesus. It's not the truth and never will be. The other thing is, I know that some of you women in the room are like, dang, this is really terrible. (laughs) These systems seem so oppressive. And I want to encourage you with something really quick. I won't belabor the point here, but this is, is hard to read sometimes through our modern Western lens. But man, you need to know, women in this room, that Jesus is for you. And that God's revealed word is for your protection. It's for your empowerment. It's for your life. We can read verses like Deuteronomy 24 and, and, and John chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 10 and, and 1 Timothy chapter 2 and think, what the heck? Does Jesus even love women? Yes. You see, the scripture was written in a cultural context. And I'm, I'm going to be just really quick here, and we can talk about this offline if you have more questions about it. But you need to know that when Deuteronomy 24 was written, women were less than property in that world. Women were like disregarded, non-valuable property. A man could cast a woman out of his tent, as the phrase was used, for any reason. And she had no protections. She had no way of engaging in life. She had no way of owning property or making money outside of prostitution or slavery. This is a really, really hard world to be a woman when Deuteronomy 24 was written. And God came along and inspired Moses and wrote this law that said, if you're going to divorce your wife, you have to give her a certificate of divorce, which gives her legal protection, gives her status as a citizen. It allows her to claim property that's due to her. It allows her to remarry and enter into another family. Whereas before she couldn't. It's weird to say it because it doesn't seem this way to us, but Deuteronomy 24 is insanely socially progressive for women. And even in Jesus' teaching here, the accepted teaching of the day, and this is crazy, was that a man could not commit adultery. That was actually the accepted Jewish understanding, was that a woman could commit adultery. And a man could commit adultery against another man if the woman was married, but a man could never commit adultery against his wife wasn't even a category. And Jesus makes that category here. 
He says men and women are equal bearers of the weight of the marriage and the responsibility of the marriage and the accountability of the marriage. That's Jesus speaking about the dignity and the importance of a woman from the relationship. That's, there's power in that. So I want you to hear that. Because when we read ancient texts, right, and we hear about some of the social understandings of gender and, and masculinity and femininity in that day, it can be, really, can be really weird and hard to engage that as the Word of God. And sisters, I just want you to hear that your Jesus loves you. And he empowers you. And he desires life, growth, and joy for you. And that is to be found in his word. It's just sometimes you have to do a little more, do a little more work to see the cultural context to it. So if that's weird for you, we can talk about that offline. But, so that's my two things, right? So, so Jesus is giving a blunt teaching here. And there's, there's some challenge in it. And some of us need to hear that. But, but let me take a step back here and look at the larger thing that Jesus is saying. You see, Jesus brought this back to the original design. He said, marriage is important. You shouldn't get divorced because that's not the way God designed it. He designed a man and a woman to come together and be bound together. And the two become one. They become one flesh. The, the literal Hebrew there is one high one skin the two become one and jesus and paul both elaborate on this theology you can read this in ephesians chapter 4 where paul talks about how this idea of marriage and the unifying of two totally different people from different families coming together and creating a new family where one didn't exist before, that there's something profoundly mysterious about this, and yet it refers to Christ and the church. See, as we elaborate on on this design God had, what we see is God's design in marriage is a physical picture. It's an analogy in flesh of God's relationship to his creation. That just as a man and a woman, who oftentimes couldn't be any more opposite, can come together and create a new family where one didn't exist, and there are children born, and new life happens, just as that often happens, The God of the universe made a way for his creation to be unified to him. To have life, new life, joy and intimacy and connection with him. Where a new family is made. Where before one didn't exist. You see, God, in designing the family, before sin even entered the picture... God was already declaring the truth of the gospel that sin would not win. That God's children would be connected to him and united to him. One of the primary analogies used in the New Testament to refer to Christ and the church is the bridegroom and the bride. A marriage is used to describe Jesus' self-sacrificing love and connection and intimacy with his church, with his people. And so when we say that marriage is important and God's design for marriage is important, I mean, the reason is simple. It's a declaration of who God is and what he's doing in this world. When we see marriage act out in our society in the way that God designed it, we see a picture of Christ making a way for his children 
to have life with Him. To have joy and restoration with Him. And the reason divorce is so weighty in Christ's eyes is what damages this declaration. And it blasphemes this truth. See, when we are, when two people who, who were unified step into sin and idolatry and, and bitterness and anger and broken relationship and they divide what was once one skin. This breaks the picture of who God is. Because, and I want you to hear this, beloved, because God is not like that. You see, the reason Jesus cares so much about divorce is because God doesn't divorce. The Apostle Paul said in his letter to Timothy that when we are faithless, God is faithful. The reason Jesus pushes so hard on this, a thing that really in his day like wasn't even a discussion, the assumption was that a guy could get divorced if he wanted to. Jesus pushes on that and says, no, no. That is not God's design for this world. God's design is not separation and isolation and broken relationship. His design is unity and connection, one skin, one flesh, reconciliation, repair of what's broken. Because that's how God is. That's who he is and what he does. He repairs what is broken. He makes one family where there were two. He takes the estranged creatures who have pushed him away and rebelled and sinned against him and said, I will make a home for you. I will make a place for you. I will be united to you. I will restore you. Beloved, Jesus cares about marriage because he cares about you. Because he cares about human beings made in his image. Being restored from death to life. How many of you guys have read the book of Hosea before? We could do a whole sermon series on it. Hosea is, this, is, is one of the minor prophets and it's a really unique one. It it's essentially tells a story of a prophet who God calls him to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer, which is just a terrible name. Gomer. So he goes and he marries Gomer, and they have a bunch of kids, and he gives the kids even worse names than his wife. Their names are like No Faith and I Don't Love You and stuff like that. It's actually what their names are. It's terrible. And, and God's speaking to Hosea this whole time. He calls this prophet, this man of God, this respected theologian in his culture to go and marry a prostitute. And he says, essentially, your marriage to this woman is going to be a picture of my relationship to my people. And so he goes and he marries her and they have a bunch of kids and she leaves him. And if you read Hosea chapter 3, 
We're actually going to turn there real quick. It's after the big prophets, after Ezekiel and Daniel. Where is it? I should have put a bookmark here. Hosea chapter 3. His wife, the prostitute, leaves him and goes back into prostitution and is selling herself. And it's contextually, we understand that it's more of like a sexual slavery than it is uh, a prostitution. But chapter 3 of Hosea is real short, and it says this The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who has loved another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. <laughs> Apparently a big deal. <laughs> so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lekoth of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore and belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. It's hard to understand the kind of Old Testament prophet language sometimes, right? But the short version is this. He comes to this woman, who is his wife, who has borne him children, who is now selling herself again after being redeemed, after being dignified. And he comes up and he pays for her. And he says, you don't get to do this anymore. You're mine. You have to come home. You have to come be my wife. You have to come mother our children. You have to live the life I've made for you. You can't keep doing this. And guys, there's, there's power in this. You see, in this day, in this culture, that sex slave of a prostitute is the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the low. And, and the greatest dignity, and, and this is going to again sound harsh, ladies, but, but stick with me on this. The greatest dignity that a woman in this day can, can attain to is, is to marry into an honored and respected family and care for that home and raise up godly children. And so this prophet and this theologian comes and finds this woman and offers her that. Come into my home, be my wife, be honored and respected, raise my children, take care of my home. He, he essentially gives this woman everything a woman in that day was looking for. And she runs away. And she goes back to her pimp and back to the slave block and back to her old way of life. Now think about, think about that from Hosea's perspective, right? But the dignity, the life, the freedom he's given her. And she runs back to slavery. And she runs back to indecency. And she runs back to bondage. And the crazy thing is, by the way, he had every legal right to go to the pimp and be like, that's my wife. I can take her. Get out of here. But he doesn't. He goes and he buys her back. Some say he, he pays the bride price again. In reality, he buys a slave off the auction block. 
He just comes to her and says, you can't do this. You can't, this isn't who you are. Come live in my house. Be my wife. Take care of our home. Raise our kids. And he dignifies her and invites her back into life. Beloved, God preserved this story and told us that this is a picture of our relationship to God. That that this book and this story was preserved for that reason. That God says, I I am the one, the, the, the honorable, loving, faithful husband who has brought you up out of filth and mire and dignified you and given you life and given you everything you need and hope for. And you run back. You just sprint back to bondage and death and sin. Well, I'm not okay with that. I'm not just going to let that have you. God says here through Hosea, I'm just not satisfied with the filth of this cursed world having you, Gomer. I'm going to come and I'm going to pay the price and you're going to be mine. Beloved, this is what our Jesus does for us. He chases us down and he draws us back and he pays the price and says, you are mine. You are mine. You're mine. You have to come live with me for a long time. You can't keep doing this. You're mine. So when we hear this teaching today where Jesus gives such this, this harsh and blunt word on, on divorce, right? Which is a good word. And all of us need to hear it because marriage is really hard. It's a good word. But beloved, I encourage you to take a step back. I encourage you to take a step back and see as Jesus points to us that the reason this matters is because God has designed you for something better. He's designed you for something bigger. He has been seeking you and chasing you and calling you and he has paid the price for you. Divorce matters because marriage matters and marriage matters because the gospel matters. Marriage matters because God is faithful when you are faithless. When you run, when you hide, when you give in to anger and bitterness, when your marriage seems like a sham, and your relationships seem like atrocities, and your family just seems like shambles on the ground, when we are faithless, He is faithful. He does not run away. He does not divorce. He buys us back. He makes us his. Beloved, this, this is the truth of our Jesus. Oh, he's so faithful. He's so faithful to us. How many of us have have run away from the blessed home our Savior has made for us in the last 12 hours? He seeks you out. 
He buys you back and says, no, 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 no. You must come dwell with me for many days. You are mine. I will not be faithless to you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time in worship. We're going to open up the table so that you can come and take of the elements and remember Christ's body broken for you and his blood poured out for you. We're going to open time for you to sit with friends or with one of your pastors and pray or to pray over the church or whatever you need to do. We're going to do this because we're worshiping our faithful God. Well, but I hope today that you have heard in Jesus' words the power of the faithfulness of our God. I hope that the power of that faithfulness draws you to repentance. That it draws you to look upon your own relationships, maybe with, with a more determined and a more dedicated eye. But man, beyond that, I hope, I hope it draws you to your knees as you see the idols you run to over and over and over. How could Gomer look at her life and say, this is better? I should, I should go back to that. And yet she did. If something in her heart convinced her it would just be better to go back to prostitution. And how many of us do this day by day? We just run back to our idols. We run back to our death. And yet God is faithful. Beloved, may this truth, may it draw us to awe. May it draw us to reverence. May it draw us to worship. So I'm going to pray and we're going to take a few minutes and we're just going to celebrate the faithfulness of our God. Jesus, you are so good. You are so life-giving to us. You are so long-suffering with us. You stick by us when we run away. You draw us to life when we desire death. God, you are faithful to us. Thank you. Thank you that you are a God of unity. You are a God of family. You are a God of intimacy. And you are a faithful God. Spirit, draw us. Draw us to this truth. And may we worship you for it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.